Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, last week I was scrolling through my Instagram feed and I saw a story by my buddy Neil Hamamoto, who runs a public art nonprofit called Worthless Studios. And he posted a little story of uh, himself getting his photo taken with his new infant nephew. And he had BTS video showing a 20 by 24 color print being, for lack of a better word, developed (laughs) in front of my eyes, well, at least on the screen, and it looked like wizardry. I just hadn't seen like a color process out in ambient light happening before. And I was like, what is that? Mm. Well, it turns out a guy by the name of Ethan Moses, who some of the listeners might know because he goes by the name of Camera Dactyl uh, on Instagram. And he has a website called cameradactyl.com, taught a large format color reversal printing process with help from people from Brooklyn Film Camera. Now, Ethan is known for building cameras and he's launched Kickstarters in the past to sell some of his 3D printed cameras. He has a really cool 35 millimeter one. He also has a four by five camera. He's got another one that will take Mamiya 6.7 lenses. He's, he's developed laser cut pinhole cameras and more. But for this specific workshop, he had designed and previously built a 20 by 24 like view camera, which he schlepped in a white van from his home base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Ooh, Albuquerque. Yeah. So we drove in this van. Uh, He also designed and built these gigantic film holders, which also double his processing trays. So I don't know if you ever shot any large format before, but you 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 have the film or the paper in these carriers, and then you pull out the dark slide, you expose it, and typically you'll go back in the dark room and then put the pieces of film or paper into the trays. But the way that he designed it, because I guess he wanted to be on location or simplify the task of developing, there's little holes in the side of the of the holder, the carrier that allow you to dump chemicals into it. And then you can just agitate it while it's in the carrier. It's really kind of cool. Apparently, a few years ago, photographers on YouTube started experimenting with using photo paper for direct non-negative base printing. So it's kind of like Polaroid, but it's not, you know, you're using regular RA4 photo paper. The pro of doing so is that it's much cheaper per print than buying the the film negative and developing the film negative and then printing it onto photo paper. But the con is that the color balance can be really wacky because Mm. photo paper isn't really designed, designed to be, you know, developed under a tungsten source. And the ISO of the paper is like ISO 5 or 6 or 1 or 2. It's single-digit ISO. You know, we're used to shooting at ISO 400 or with digital cameras now, it's, you know, we frequently go to 1600 or 3200. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you either need super long exposures like in the olden days or you need a ton of strobes. And Ethan brought four Speedatron packs for a total of 20,000 watt seconds. Oh, wow. Or so. So it was a ton of light to get your your photo taken. It felt like my hair was going to catch on fire. (laughs) But a really, really magical process to see this black and white negative image on paper. And then you dump in some color processing material. And then it turns into this this color image. It's just really, really inspiring and cool to see. Because, you know, it's just like a Polaroid of the first time you develop in the darkroom. It's magic. Yeah, wait. So you went and did a workshop 
with this with these people. I did indeed. Okay. Uh, I haven't been to a photo workshop as an attendee. Gosh, I can't even remember the last time. Yeah. And obviously COVID kind of put a kink in anyone's plans to go to photo workshops in the past 18 months or 20 months or whatever it's been. Uh, But I found it to be completely inspiring. Um, And it was, you know, it's an analog process and everybody was really motivated to be there. I met uh, a couple of really great people. So Associated Press's May E. Wong, who's a, a very well-known photojournalist, was there. Photo Shelter user Pete Duval, who does a lot of uh, analog processes down in D.C. area. And a very well-known tintypist named Carla Rodriguez, who goes by at Blackhand. Uh, and more were attending this workshop. There were only eight of us. And it went from nine to six, but Ethan actually stayed with a few of us until like 730 Wow. So we just had a blast. And it was just, oh. I mean, it was so inspiring to meet and work with other, you know, really nerdy photographers who are into the whole process. Mm. Um, highly recommend. That sounds, that sounds like a great time. It's so fun to make art with other people. You know, it's obviously something that we haven't been able to do in the last year and a half or so. And that just sounds great. When you first told me uh, that you were thinking about taking this workshop, I I thought of Dawood Bay's uh, work, which we've talked about his work on the show before. And I went and saw um, an American project, which was his exhibition at the Whitney just um, this past summer. And he worked with a large format Polaroid. And the prints are just stunning to see. It, It was a 20 by 24 Polaroid that weighed 265 pounds. Um, and he worked exclusively with it for upwards of 10 years, which is just amazing. But you're telling me that this process is different than the Polaroid. Is that right? Yeah. You know, typically Polaroids, they, you have that little white border at the bottom and that border has packets of chemical in it. So when the, when the film has been exposed and then it runs through those rollers, the rollers squish the chemical over the image, which develops the image. And that was right. kind of the genius of, of Edward Land's Polaroid system. And as you mentioned, you know, people like Dawood Bay have that 20 by 24. Our good friend Joe McNally did portraits of 9-11 uh, on a 40-inch by 80-inch Polaroid. Oh, that's right. Where every single image was 300 bucks of, of Polaroid product. Mm-hmm. Um, so this particular image, you know, when you're, when you're shooting on a, a, a piece of photographic paper, your paper cost is like 50 cents, a dollar. So it's significantly cheaper, but, you know, again, you need a ton more light because it's, you're using paper in a way that it's really wasn't designed for. Um, Mm. The whole experience, you know, I got home and I was like, okay, am I ever going to do this in real life? Because, you know, (laughs) I I don't own like an eight by 10 camera. I'm not inclined to purchase or build a 20 by 24 camera, except then I got in YouTube and I found all these people that have been building (laughs) <laughs> cameras out of plywood, out of foam core. And, you know, as long as you have a lens and you can find, you know, these vintage old lenses on eBay for like a hundred bucks, if it's not in great condition or really, you know, near mint condition for 500 bucks, you can build uh, a box, a light proof box for, you know, easily under a hundred dollars. So all of a sudden, yeah, I know it's, uh, I found myself really, really intrigued about building, uh, even with cardboard or foam core, like an eight by 10 camera, and then maybe using this process. Now, my buddy Neil, who I mentioned at the top of the show, he actually has a dark room. 
So we could go to his little workshop and, you know, build a little wooden camera because he has wood woodworking tools as well. We could build a camera and then do this. Now, I don't own 20,000 watt seconds of <laughs> lights. I own maybe 2,000 watt seconds of light. So there are some technical hurdles. Mm. Uh but it seems so cool. And, you know, when you go to digital photography workshops, not to poo-poo digital because we both shoot digital and have done so for a very long time. Oh, sure. But, you know, the process of shooting digital is you take a picture largely by yourself. You show people maybe on your screen. And then maybe there's a photo crit at the end of the day or at the end of the workshop. That's very, very different than requiring like two other people to help you to operate a 20 by 24 camera. Yeah, Sounds very collaborative. Plus, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of like the unknown of like, what, what am I going to capture? What is this actually going to end up looking like? You, you focus through a ground glass. Uh, and for anyone who's shot 4x5 or 8x10 or 20x24 before, you know, ground glass is uh, an amazing piece of physics, but it's not the brightest thing. You know, if you're used to looking through an electronic viewfinder or a DSLR viewfinder, looking at ground glass is like difficult at times. And then you have the whole thing where you focus through the ground glass, you have a razor thin depth of field, but then you have to insert the film slide into the camera. And so the subject is sitting there for like a minute while you're getting the camera ready to, to fire the image. Mm -hmm. So there were definitely cases where uh, things were out of focus. Uh, some of the other participants uh, had things out of focus, but I asked Ethan, I was like, what percentage of images are in focus in your workshops? And he goes, well, most of the attendees are photographers. And so they understand what it's like to have a portrait taken in, in you know, where you can't move. Mm -hmm. So he actually said 80% of the images that people had been taking in his workshops while he was in New York were, were sharp. Oh, that's pretty which good. Which is really cool, yeah. I mean, this reminds me of like, you know, Photo Darkroom 101 when you make the pinhole camera. Yeah from like the Quaker Oats canister totally, and you're, totally. you're, you're putting the paper in there. Although this sounds like a much cooler um, result. Are you going to, are you going to frame your picture of yourself, Alan? It feels a little narcissistic to do so, <laughs> but it's such a lovely looking, you know, it's got a quality to it for sure. Yeah. Which yeah. is cool. And kind of the, the, the really imp imperfect borders because where the chemical kind of bleeds off under the, the retaining frame. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, you know, maybe it's a nice gift for my, my parents for the holidays or something. Oh, be sweet. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, like that. I'm hoping to do an interview with Ethan. In the meantime, if you go to our blog at blog.photoshelter.com, I will embed uh, a little video of what this process looks like when the black and white negative image on the paper turns into a color positive image. And oh, I think cool. you saw my Instagram story. I mean, it just looks fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It does. It really, I mean, you said wizardry like yeah. at the top of the show and it definitely looks that way. Highly recommend if you get a chance, if Ethan's in your neighborhood, you can, you can find out where his workshops are happening at cameradactyl.com. There is a new job title at the New York Times, and that title is Photo Futurist. Hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, Josh Hainer has been promoted to be the paper's very first photo futurist. And you might be thinking, what? does that mean? Um, basically, Josh is going to join the leadership team of the photo department and will lead all technology initiatives, partnerships, workflow enhancements, and tool development related to photo and visual storytelling for the times. Um, 
Josh actually joined the New York Times originally as a photo editor and then later became a staff photographer. He also helped co-found the Lens blog, which I used to look at religiously. This is a very cool development, I think, for the newsroom. You know, the funny thing about being adjacent to the photo industry for so long is that I remember when Josh was like a young kid and was starting as a photo <laughs> editor because, you know, we had a lot of friends in common through the photojournalism uh, industry. And then in 2014, all of a sudden he won a Pulitzer for feature photography. Uh, he did a whole photo story on a guy named Jeff Bauman, who was a survivor from the Boston Marathon bombing, mm. uh, who had his legs amputated as uh, or blown off because of the bomb. Wow. Uh, and really, really moving work. Uh, and won the Pulitzer in 2014. And then he really got into drone photography and he had some fantastic drone work and has been doing that as a focus for the past several years. There's a piece that we'll link to called Documenting Climate Change by Air, Land, and Sea, published in 2019. We can find that on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. But really, really exciting times to see him evolve as a, uh, as a photographer, photo editor, and now photo futurist. Pretty cool. I can't think of another company that has like a title like that. Yeah, it has, has the resources and a staff large enough to kind of support a title like that. Sure, yeah. We've mentioned the innovative ways that the New York Times has been displaying images in the past with maps and other visual data over the past few years. Uh, we have a small collection of links that we're going to share on the blog, but I just wanted to point out there is a full R&D team at the New York Times They've been doing a lot with photogrammetry recently, um, using trying to figure out how to use mobile phones and the LiDAR sensors that are built into the most recent phones to create 3D maps of particular areas. And there's a couple examples of this where they go to Freeman's Alley in New York City. They went to an artist's loft and they created these incredible photorealistic renderings that you can kind of spin yourself around in. I also found that there's a search archives and taxonomy team, and they're <laughs> using computer vision to rescan old prints, you know, dating back to the 19th century when the New York Times was founded to create a more, more accurate digital archive. So they're trying to get 10 million additional articles online using optical character recognition, uh, AI, and neural networks. It's fascinating. I think another great example of the way that the Times is kind of like pushing forward photography and just visual coverage in general is a story that we talked about on the show earlier this year by Peter Kujawinski under the headline, The Plan to Protect Indigenous Elders Living Under the Northern Lights. This was video mixed with still photo um, and the text overlay just kind of flying over all of the visuals as you scrolled down. A really fascinating, wonderful story. The, the photographer and videographer on that piece was Pat Kane, and I actually did an interview with him uh, a few months ago that's also, you can find on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. But yeah, just really, really innovative storytelling. And I think the, the thing that strikes me about the way that Times is approaching it is they don't get too enamored with one single technology. Mm. You know, it's not all drones all the time. It's not photogrammetry all the time. It's, it, it feels like a nice balance of multimedia in support of the story that they're trying to tell. So I think they've got some really smart people and having Josh be a part of that um, while also looking at things like workflow, you know, how do you get an image out of the camera onto the news desk, out onto the published 
uh, website as quickly as possible. All very, very interesting conundrums that a lot of different organizations are tackling, but the New York Times, again, has the resources to do so. Absolutely. I'll be interested to see where he takes this role. We haven't really heard of a title of photo futurist before, but there are people like Mark Lavoie, uh, who we've talked about before. Mark Lavoie is a professor emeritus at Stanford University. He helped develop things like Google Street View. He helped develop the scanning technology behind Google Books. Uh, And he was on the Google Pixel team for a very long time working on that computational photography that does a lot of the voodoo that makes camera phone photography so effective and eye-popping nowadays. Uh, He left Google, I think, in the past year and now is a fellow at Adobe. Um, There is a really great interview on The Verge uh, on their podcast series called Mark Lavoy on the Balance of Camera Hardware, Software, and Artistic Expression. And if there's anyone else who deserves to be called a photofuturist, I think Professor Lavoy is one of those people. Really great to see that organizations are viewing the role of visuals, photography, videography, um, as being quintessentially important to storytelling. So really happy to see these people, Josh and and Lavoy, being uh, honored in that way. You know, when it comes to gear, that my favorite thing to talk about is Fuji Instax film. <laughs> it's the only gear you'll talk about. <laughs> that's that's correct. Um, well, Fuji Film has launched a a wide format version of its Instax in a new mobile printer. Um, it prints out four point three inch by three point four inch. So it's the wide. It's the Instax wide, basically. It's a decently sized Polaroid. Yeah, yeah, no, decently sized Polaroid. It's about the size of like two credit cards next to one another. Um, and it this new printer is compatible with your phone um, or also some of the Fujifilm mirrorless cameras. Um, and it retails at $150. Um, and you can also buy the film that's retailing for about $22 for a pack of 10. So it, you're, you're paying quite a lot. You're paying about $2 per photo. Mm. It's not... Not necessarily cheap. I've used a similar technology that was released by Polaroid a couple years ago. Um, It's called the Polaroid Lab Instant Printer, where you literally pull up the image that you want to print on your cell phone and place your phone down onto the printer, and then it prints it out on a classic square um, Polaroid film. Um, you know, and I, I like these type of technologies, but I think, you know, my favorite thing about the Instax and, and using instant film is that there's just, just that whole magic of it being unknown about what it's about to look like. And as it develops, whereas, you know, when you're using these printers, you kind of already have an idea. The image is already taken on your phone. It's not quite as exciting to me. I gotta agree with you. I, I bought yeah. the first generation, it's called the Fujifilm Instax Share SP1. Mm-hmm. And it was their first attempt at building a, I guess it's Bluetooth, uh, is a technology that's moving the, the image, if I can recall correctly. And, you know, when you have the camera in hand and it's got the built-in printing mechanism, you know, you pull it up to your face, you hit the button, the thing ejects, you wait a minute, and then you have your image. With this thing, you take it on your phone or your camera, You have to connect it via Bluetooth. I've always found that process to be really, really wonky. You select the image, you send it off, takes another minute. There's something, (laughs) you know, it's just a drag. It's not fun to use these these printers, but I I can see 
you know, if you're a professional photographer or you really want the highest fidelity and you want people closing their eyes because it's $2.20 per photo, (laughs) I can see where people would say, hey, I want a higher quality image. Yeah, I think that like tools like this are really good for, you know, like wedding photographers, for example, that, you know, want to like give their, their clients that extra special like you know, oh, here's like Fuji film from the wedding like that, that could feel really cute and be fun. Um, but in terms of just, yeah, creating like a piece of artwork, not so much. I, I actually have this Instax Share SP1 on my desk. It's been sitting in the same position probably for about seven years. <laughs> and <laughs> I have a closet behind my desk that has several boxes of Instax mini film. And Sarah, <gasps> I think I'm going to give it to you. <gasps> I don't know if it if it's going to be all wonky because it's been sitting in there for so long. Maybe the colors are going to be really dull and everything will be underexposed because the light sensitivity oh is, is down. I don't but. care. I don't care. <laughs> See, it's, it's part yours. of the magic. Well, you know, we had dinner the other week and that was the first mm-hmm. time we've seen each other in like a year and a half. Yeah. So maybe another year and a half before I get to see you in person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So that, that'll give the, the film time to age even more. It'll be even more of a mystery when I, when I pop it in the camera. Um, No, thank you, Alan. That's really sweet. I would definitely be happy to take that off your hands. Care package on its way, Sarah. (laughs) Cool. I want to thank the audience for listening today. Hey, since you're here, smash that subscribe button, leave us a comment or a rating. You can always tweet at us at PhotoShelter. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at PhotoShelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at PhotoShelter.com slash resources.